Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I am visiting with Laura Kruger. Laura is the curator of the museum at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, and she's also the curator of the traveling exhibit, Balka's Lower East Side, currently on exhibit at the Yiddish Book Center. Welcome, Laura. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be part of this and the continuing interest that the Yiddish Book Center has in the um, period that really changed art history and literature at the same moment. It's, um, once again, a beautifully curated exhibit and really interesting. It's a comprehensive collection which includes works from the 19th and 20th century and a list of, I will say, surprising range of artists. This exhibit is culled from the larger collection. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the collection and um, then what the traveling exhibit includes. Well, the collection represents the vision, actually, of the collector. Most collections do, and people, I believe, collectors start to collect to enforce an idea of self and of uh, family history and and position uh, in the world at large. And so Sigmund Balka had, from an early point in his life, as a teenager, um, a deep interest in art. He grew up in Philadelphia and uh, knew that area very well. And when he was able to, he started to actually collect and own art. What he, he was very fortunate in that when he commenced his collecting passion, um, it was yet an undervalued and lesser-known area of, um, of uh, saving history, saving culture, because that's indeed what collectors do. It is not the um, miser image that frequently is portrayed as the collector will just stash away mm-hmm. and hide things and hold things and clutch them to, uh, you know, their bosoms um, so that no one else can have them. What Bolka has done that is quite a- astonishing uh, is that he has shared and by sharing has engaged other people in his passion, which is the um, how art is created and how the connections between artists create um, a scene, a stage, a presentation, a view of a period. And, and you mentioned, um, I think it's really true that passionate collectors do tend to find a focus for their collection. And I'm wondering what resonated about using the Lower East Side as sort of the the thread that holds us together? Well, it's very hard to say, because since I'm probably close to the same age as uh, Sig Balka, um, I grew up in a period when the hot artists were in their late teens, early 20s, into their early 30s, and it was the birth of, well, it wasn't the birth of abstract expressionism, but of many, many new art styles. What is similar, I think, between the 1950s 
and 60s scene in New York, and the 19, um, what shall I say, the the earlier period of of artists living on the Lower East Side is that it was a community somewhat uneasy as much as people in the same profession like to know other people in the profession. They're all very guarded about being copied, emulated um, in any way. So they, they are both secretive and gregarious. And I think that was true in the 1930s uh, when much of, of the art that, uh, that uh, Balka started to collect was being uh, created as it was in the late 50s and early 60s. And, and you mentioned, um, the, well, th- there's quite a list of artists here. You've got Joseph Hirsch, Larry Rivers, Raphael Sawyer, Saul Raskin. Were they all living in the Lower East Side, so these were reflections no. of place? No, not at the same time. The, right. They, there's a big range of ages there. Yeah. And when they were, the, and, and differences of whether they were born in the U.S. or whether they were... Uh, they came to the U.S. when they were um, very young. Um, most of them came, many of them came when they were in their early teens, and they were um, not at all nostalgic about the old country. They were so embracing of America and of New York. I'm not certain that New York and America were the same place in the 1930s. I think they were very different. Um, New York was a polyglot, and for the immigrants, something they were familiar with. They were used to people in their, uh, wherever they had traveled to or fled to, being from many different places. They were not people in an isolated group of similar people. I think that makes a very big impact on the actual art that was happening. Um, There was not one style. There were many styles. There was not one prescribed technique. There were many techniques. Everybody was experimenting. Right. And, but the common, the common focus to all of these seems to be to capture aspects of life and people um, and scenes yes, of indeed. the Lower East Side. I mean, that, that is the, yeah, th- that, again, I yes, keep using the uh, word thread, but these, yeah. These were people who literally wandered around with sketchbooks in pocket and when something caught their eye. But I really do think, after hovering over this subject for a long time, that an artist already has a vocabulary, a visual vocabulary, of their own paintings that they've seen, sculptures that they've seen, architecture that they've seen throughout their travels um, impacts what they choose to look at. Mm-hmm. And I think um, most of the people, most of the Im- images that we've sent to you are um, uh, people very passionately engaged in life. Mm-hmm. They are not posing for anything. They are, um, 
they they create the almost motion picture of life on the Lower East Side. And it's interesting that the motion picture industry basically started on the Lower East mm-hmm. Side. And I think there, I mean, I don't think anybody's written about this yet, or maybe they have, but uh, there's a big, a big um, connection between people making films. It was, it was not a static place. It was a place in which many, many things were happening at once, real life um, and a stressful real life, not a life lived behind closed doors uh, or in enclaves or, you know, of privacy. Life lived out in the open on the streets, uh, a lot of theater, a lot of performance, a lot of, uh, by performance, I mean public performance. And I think the, the, um, the fact that although in very rare circumstances, probably none, were any of these people financially secure. So um, they all looked for ways in which to um, make their art viable as a product. That sounds very commercial. I don't mean it to sound that way. But they were all fortunate that they were in a milieu that had access to um, print, to lithograph, to various printing forms, um, all of the places that most of them went to school or after-school programs, Educational Alliance, Cooper Union, the National Academy of Design, the Art Students League, all of these places were had exceptional print programs. So although many of the artists m- may be as well known for their studio painting um, product, you know, paintings, mm-hmm. they they reached a much broader public by being printmakers. It, it's interesting because when I first came to the Yiddish Book Center and I began to look through the books, um, I was astounded by the number of names of artists that I represented. Um, so you look at Raphael Sawyer, I didn't think of him as being sort of um, you know, an illustrator as long as well as being a fine artist. So, you know, you talk right. about high art and low art. There, it's interesting that you mention this because they seem to have sort of two personas, as it well, were. Well, they, they, they yeah. I, I'm, I, it's the wrong I word. Bristle at the word yes, low art yeah, yeah. or okay. the word illustrator, um, because a reproduction of an oil painting in a book is an illustration as well as Mm -hmm. something that had been commissioned for to illustrate a story. So um, I think that um, I would like to blur that for for this occasion. Um, I think there's an immediacy to uh, drawing and print styles that sometimes is lost in a formal oil painting and so you get you get the energy of all of these people you get the immediacy you you actually get a more uh, I'm going to use the word scintillating in a physical sense sense a more vibrating s- style uh, through the prints and the drawings 
than you might get in a photograph, let alone in um, a very time-consuming oil painting. Yeah, they're, they're all such strong pieces, and together they give you this window into everyday life. Um, I mean, just in the range of, there's, you've got portraits, you've got um, images of tradespeople, street scenes, push carts, and seeing them side by side spanning a century, um, it's, uh, you know, again, it's, it makes for a very compelling way to see this community. Right. Well, they didn't, they, they uh, none of them actually um, felt anchored or tethered. I mean, that might have been home, and that might have been their er-American experience. But many of them um, were very cosmopolitan within their New York um, daily lives. When I was a child, I was a professional ballet dancer. And um, now I am not going to be able to say whether it was Moses or Raphael who sat at the New York City Ballet, um, uh, the School of American Ballet, on a bench at the front of the uh, rehearsal rooms and sketched and sketched and sketched. And um, I don't think it ever occurred to me when I was 12 or 13 or 14 to ever ask for one of those sketches. But it, it was such a given that somebody would be sitting there and uh, maybe it was nice and warm. Maybe mm -hmm. the music was good. Uh, but I'd like to believe that there was some energy that transferred from the rehearsal studio to the sketch pad. And um, likewise, this energy of these... Well, yeah. we didn't think that they were very yeah. energized. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think all of this work tells us about the Jewish experience? I mean, do you look at it that way or that... Um, it just it happens to all be depicting an area well, or people. We, we yeah. always say, we, yeah. the Jewish community, says the Jewish Lower East Side or the Jewish East Side. And certainly we were a powerful, dominant group of people, but people from many different countries, people from um, um, very sophisticated cities like Vienna, people from you know, shtetl villages in, in uh, the former, you know, USSR, the um, people from uh, Spain, well, not from Spain so much, but from Italy a lot, and the crossover of people who were not Jewish and the same-aged uh, people who were Jewish was was very significant. I think that the isolation that they might have encountered had they never emigrated, had they never uh, come to the U.S., would have created a different art scene entirely. I think there is a, um, a, a, a transfusion of energies both ways between Jewish artists and non-Jewish artists of the period. And are there any one or two works that stand out and to you or have certain resonance for you of in the collection in the co um, in, either in the collection or in uh, in the exhibit me, yeah me, well i 
I, being a feminist at heart, am very pleased that we have some women in the group. We have Isabel Bishop and we have Selma Bluestein. The Selma Bluestein, the L, is is something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I I think part of a New York experience is the subway. And as many people who are tourists that now come to New York to go and walk on the High Line, that's wonderful. It's terrific. But the subway still is the uh, arteries of New York. And I think that the Bluestein really catches that uh, feeling. Um, I think all of the street, the street vendors, um, we have fewer, we, well, I live on the Upper West Side in New York, and I assure you we have a lot of street vendors, but many parts of the city have no street vendors. And so there's that kind of energy that in the Philip Shaney piece, in the, um, well, the fruit and vegetable stands, uh, like um, Norman Goldberg, um, there, there is a kind of, it is wonderful art, but it is not static. It's, it's alive, it is pulsing with um, many different kinds of things at once. It's not, it, it separates art from being a picture. It is not a picture of people interacting at a particular period of time. It captures, it's dimensional, um, that, that you just don't forget. You look for it in your current life. Um, so I, I really like that a lot. Um, hmm. Well, I would say the same thing about the William Sharp, the couple in the meat market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that we go through our daily, daily lives, and we may see things like that. We may be in a supermarket, we may go to a butcher, and we see these things, but we think that we're, we're, not, we're not seeing ourselves. And we, can't see, we cannot see ourselves unless we see ourselves through the eyes of artists. And so it raises for each of us our own daily activities through, through the talent of artists we can position ourselves in a higher plane than in our usual mundane, how much is this, uh, how much are the apples today? So I, I think that makes a very uh, big difference uh, in art in our lives. I think the whole reason that we look so carefully at art is to better understand our own actions, our own interactions, our own um, relationships with other people. If we don't see ourselves, we only can see other people. So when we look at um, exceptional works of art, even works of art that are immediate, because um, all of, since this, these are mostly drawings and watercolors and etchings and lithographs, they're very immediate. They don't get worked over and over and over. So you catch the, the actual pulse of, of several things, of the subject matter, 
of the artist, of the time, what what people expected to achieve, and how it passes over, you know, close to a century later to us. Well, I think that, um, yes, you've achieved that in curating this show. Um, they're, they're great pieces. As you say, they have an energy to them. Some are reflective, um, but you really feel connected either to the scene in some way or it, or it invites you in to try to engage with these, well, the people and what, the activities. There, there's in one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, which um, depicts immigrants uh, needing to make some money and uh, beginning in their own corner of whatever uh, apartment they're sharing with somebody else to uh, start making garment industries. The garment industry is born on the Lower East Side. And in this particular uh, collection, I wanted it, I wanted to move some of this out of the streets and into enclosures. So um, there's a, a sewing scene, a Hyman Katz uh, painting. It is of somebody who is not working in their home. Um, but it all did start almost within the same period. So these were, everybody was an entrepreneur. Everybody was evolving a skill that they didn't even start out with. And it was the same thing with all of the artists. Uh, They were recording history in a way that has transcended the moment in which they recorded that history. We would not be discussing this if artists had not made these images. Um, And so I I think that is why we are so fortunate, in a way, that there were were a sufficiency of them around and that we had a collector who understood that this was something that needed to be, I think, rescued and saved. I think when uh, Sig Balka started his collection, there was not this kind of focus on the Lower East Side. And so, um, to his credit, he has uh, ignited interest in this period. When, when I was a child and we would make it, you know, adventurous chip, trips from uh, um, either northern Manhattan or Brooklyn into the Lower East Side, it was generally for food um, or for bargains. So um, it's uh, this. This is not such a food collection. Maybe that reflects me. But <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it still has a lot of bargains going on. Yeah. Well, I do think we have to be very appreciative of Sigmund Balka for having had the vision to to get this collection pulled together. Oh yes. Um, we have to start with the artists. We yes, have to be thankful yes. first to the artists. Artist, absolutely. Um, and that, but without yeah. a collector, right? Without a collector, this would each piece would be in a an individual small collection, uh, tucked away in a portfolio, or since they're small pieces for the most part, small-ish, uh, they would be in hallways. When you think of where people hang art, 
what hangs in their in the rooms that they think of as public rooms, their living rooms or dining rooms. Um, uh, many of these things, people of my generation grew up with looking at uh, works on paper in hallways. Um, they they just never made it to uh, a major decor- decorated room. I don't know what else to say. So yes, I think that the collector, and since he was collecting in an area that was not at the time that he was building this collection, and it was being built, it is not, I've played in, in his archives for many happy hours, it is not a random collection. Um, it, is that it, it really is so focused. On, on this period and these artists and their, who they influenced, and um, it, it's really remarkable. And, so. and, and um, also really great to have a collector who keeps a collection together. Yes, I or, mean, and I, I, also I, disperses yes, and, it. And disperses it so that we can all um, right. enjoy, look at, engage with, and... Um, it has a home at the museum, which is really great. Um, we certainly are enjoying having the oh. visiting exhibit here for people to see. And again, to see it together, um, I think is really important that they're not just sort of one or two random pieces. No, they're not. But yeah. they they but stand alone, alone. Yeah. as individual pieces mm-hmm. within this embrace of the context. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much, um, and once again, thank you for curating a really great show, and hope to see you soon. Thank you for having me and having my my wards, so to speak. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so well, we'll take I good look care of them. To this too. All thank right. You. Take care. Bye. Thanks, Laura. You've been listening to the Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Alexa Sewing. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.